0: But I started getting all these stories from people all over the United States who had a story of something they had seen that was good. And that that changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, so I started writing about things that I read, that I read from people and things that I saw that were good.
1: Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life, about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Not too many years ago, Sean Dietrich was a middle school dropout working construction with vague dreams of a better life. Now he's Sean of the South, a writer with a huge fan base of followers who read his online columns, listen to his podcasts, and come out to his live shows. His stories are gentle and usually funny. But his childhood was just the opposite, and that childhood set him on a meandering path that led to the success and contentment that he has finally found. Dietrich has a new book called You Are My Sunshine, about an epic bike trip that he and his wife Jamie went on. It was a difficult but rewarding journey. You could kind of say the same about Sean's whole life. Here's our conversation. I want to ask about your setup. So I read some older stories about you that talked about how you wrote on a typewriter and you worked in your, uh, in the camper in your yard down in Florida, that was your office. But then I read fairly recently that you had moved. And so I'm kind of wondering what your, what your setup for writing is now.
0: Well, it's true. I've had a lot of different, a lot of different offices and, uh, I did start on typewriters, Uh, I still have all my typewriters, Uh, and then I did graduate into having a a 1950s Yellowstone camper as my primary office. I wrote, I think I wrote at least five or six books in that little camper, Uh, and I gutted it and made it really fun and it, the most important feature of it was it had a kitchen and it had a bed in the back <laughs> so i could sleep and no one would know they'd think i was working that was awesome <laughs> uh, and now we moved to birmingham and uh, our house will turn 100 years old in well i guess january and so i have an office an actual office which is just i don't even know what to do with myself i mean i've Sometimes I wake up and I just go in there and I just sit down and look around for a little while because uh, all my books are in there and all my junk is surrounding me. and I feel so good when I have my junk around me. Uh, So that's where I write. Uh, But I will say, too, I mean, most of the writing that I do is done in motion. So this seat that I'm in right now as we're having this, this conversation, I'm in our our van—it's like a little. It looks like a plumbing van. It looks like uh, the same kind of van that lab uses when they show up to your place of business to take stool samples. <laughs> and
1: there's a there's a one of those uh, hanging clothes racks behind you. I see some
0: some clothes exactly. Up there. Exactly. Yep, those are what. That's what I've worn for the last uh, events that we just did. And uh, we've got right behind me here. You can see a dog bed. That's where Marigold, my coonhound rides behind me, and Jamie, my wife, drives, and I sit in this seat, and I ride.
1: You know, I um, well, first of all, do you miss the camper?
0: Oh, yeah, I really do. Uh, I still own it. It's, it's uh, down in Florida on this little overgrown lot that, that we have, and uh, it's kind of fallen into disrepair, and I think it might have fallen too far into disrepair. So, yeah, I do miss it. That was my little safe place.
1: It reminds me of like the Rockford Files or something, you know, it's like again, I down the, <laughs> down the trailer there, you know. That's Man, that is great.
0: Done. I'm glad you said that. I've forgotten about how much I liked that that, that show and I and how much I love loved that concept.
1: So your career is, you know, obviously you did not come out of the Iowa Writers Workshop, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I want, can you sort of explain to people sort of how you ended up? doing this for a living, because it's, it's a little convoluted, right?
0: I came in to the literary field, through the back door. So the same door that the dishwashers use. That's the story of my life anyway, and I don't think I would have felt comfortable now looking back, coming through the front door anyway. Uh, so I when I was a child, um, I liked to write, and, and even though I didn't have any talent for it, my... My mother believed that, uh, it was a good way to keep me out of her, her business. So she got me a little typewriter and that's how I started. I typed with my index fingers on this typewriter. My father passed away when I was, uh, 11 years old and he died by suicide. And it was, he went out in a very loud and ugly way because, um, uh, it was a lot of mental illness and, uh, that we suffered with in my household because of him you know after he passed everybody's life was in complete disarray uh, it was like we'd been hurled sidelong through the universe we had no way of, of stopping this sideways motion so, so none of our decisions were sensical so a lot of people around us looked at my mother looked at me, looked at every everything that was going on around us and uh, questioned what we were doing. And, and they were right. What we were doing was ridiculous. My mother um, just kind of quit coming out of her room. And my sister and I were left to kind of fend for ourselves. My sister is much younger than me. So I became her cook and I did the laundry and all that. And I dropped out of school. That's where I was getting to. Uh, it was a bad decision, but at the time, it felt like the most natural thing to do.
1: And you were in what, like seventh grade, something
0: like that? Yeah, yep. Yeah, just, just seventh grade had just started. So as a result, I didn't go back. I grew up working. I had jobs. Always had jobs. Uh, life gets very tough when you lose your, your main breadwinner. So when I was a grown man i was on a construction job site and uh, a fellow mentioned that he had just finished school he was much older than i was and he had a really a uh, doctorate degree i couldn't believe it and so he suggested that i give it a shot because he said it wasn't all that hard and here we were doing the same job i thought okay i'll give it a shot so i went back to community college before they let me in they asked if i had a high school education I said, no. They said, do you have a GED? I said, no. And they said, well, then I don't think there's anything we can do for you. And before I was about to leave, a woman stopped me in the registration department and said that there's a test they give to people who had been homeschooled. And this test helps kids clep out of certain classes. I took this test stupidly, foolishly, blindly, without any preparation my one saving grace was that my cousin always told me when you take a multiple choice test, if you don't know the answer, just fill in the bubble C and you have a 50 percent chance of getting a 90 percent grade or higher. Never mind that my cousin was held back for years but <laughs> i uh I did follow that advice, and another blessing that helped me through that time was that I had never stopped reading when you drop out of school you read well this isn't this way for everybody for me it was this way when you drop out of school you find yourself so separate and so far behind the rest of the the pack you struggle to you struggle to catch up in a way uh, so that you don't feel so out so much of an outsider so much like an outsider so I read a lot and I did it probably out of a bad place. My motive was not to to enrich my life, but to keep up and to prove that I wasn't nothing. So that did save me now that I look back. Uh, they let me into college. I went and I got my high school remedial courses. One of my first classes was a creative writing class. And I showed up 30 minutes early to class and I sat down and the lady who was teaching the class in my, year here early. And I said, I've waited a long time to get here. And she gave me some of the greatest writing advice I ever got. She said, just write how you talk and we'll clean it up. And so I've held that tightly. Uh, I had a few little pieces published, nothing major. I think I made $27 on my first published piece and that made me a professional. (laughs) And uh, after that, I started a, I started a, a daily column online, which I, he- I hesitate to call a blog because a lot more work goes into it than, than a lot of people put into blogs, but it is just a blog. Uh, really, I don't know what it is, but it, it follows the newspaper column format, and that really struck a chord, and it was the only winning thing I've ever done.
1: Uh, a couple of questions about that. First of all, do you, did you, when was the moment for you when that little online column you started sort of caught fire was there some particular thing that happened where you went from nobody was reading it all of a sudden lots of people reading
0: it there were two pivotal moments for me Uh, the first one was I was writing it really loosely I was writing it purely for my own exercise and for my own enjoyment and I did it daily but it was still loose in my mind it was still up you know, I didn't consider it valuable to anybody or anything. And I didn't do it one day. And somebody, a friend of mine, who I hadn't heard from in years, emailed me and said, where was your column today? I have been reading your column every day. It's become my morning routine. I, and it wasn't there today. And this little moment happened in my brain. I mean, I hadn't I hadn't heard from this this kid in a long time and He's not a kid anymore and i said uh you read it every day he said oh yeah it's become my routine and i thought to myself about my morning routine and how i have people that i read every day uh, and growing up in the newspaper for sure and at that point i became a whole lot more intentional with it and i had this this feeling that other people were paying more attention than i thought they were the second The second time that I really was made known to me that this was more important than I was letting than I was than I knew was I had walked into a piggly wiggly grocery store and I was walking through noticing. The people inside the store, But one thing in particular really stuck out to me, and it was a group of young Mexican men, maybe 14 through 18. Who were just off a job site, covered in stucco and plaster and dust, and they were buying food uh, at the end of a day. And they approached the butcher counter, and the butcher saw them looking at meat and kind of trying to budget what they could afford. And the butcher reached behind the counter and he brought out this huge stack of of meat. And he said, I have to get rid of this because it's, it's technically the expiration date is, is won't let me keep it here anymore, but it's not bad. It's good meat. And it's just going to go in the garbage if you don't take it. And they took it. And when they looked at him, they, they were almost teary eyed and said, God bless you. And, and they're broken English. And I wrote about this in about 500 words. And uh, it really, It blew up on me and it was the first time that had ever happened. I had never, I didn't set out to do this like that, but I started getting all these stories from people all over the United States who had a story of something they had seen that was good. And that, that changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, So I started writing about things that I read, that I read from people and things that I saw that were good.
1: The other question I have about that time is when you were doing that, construction work for however long you did it did you have ambitions to do something else I mean were you always thinking I'm gonna be a writer I'm gonna be something else one day or had you sort of said this is maybe this is my life now
0: I went through a long long struggle until I finally gave up Uh, i wanted to be something else I didn't know what that was I mean, I do a lot of different things, so I didn't know what that was. I knew that I had something in me that needed to get out. It wasn't about fame. It wasn't about success as a, in, a, in a traditional sense. It was just about fulfillment. I wanted to be fulfilled. I, I had something in me that I wanted to get out, and I felt pregnant for many years, literally pregnant. I don't know how to even describe that other than to say I felt like I had a baby inside me that I had to get out, but I kept meeting dead end after dead end and I eventually just believed that I wasn't ever going to have a, a moment like that. And when I first felt the pregnancy <laughs> go away, when I first gave birth to that baby, I had written one of my first books and I gave it away at Christmas time, uh, I gave away 150 copies I didn't give anybody any information on how to pay for it because I didn't want money. I just wanted to give them away. Well, they were all claimed in about five minutes. And somehow my my phone was, and these were in the early days of phones, uh, my phone was dinging and making all this noise. And I looked at it and someone had found my eBay PayPal account. And they were paying for all these books. And there were way more people paying for books than I had books to give. So we had all this money and this money, I decided to buy more books and give more books away. So that's what we did with the money. And after that experience, I remember thinking I have just given birth. I've given birth. I feel so, I feel so relaxed now. I I feel very fulfilled.
1: You mentioned a minute ago that you sort of found that moment where you started writing about good things that happen. And, uh, I um I have a friend I was talking about with you not that long ago. I mentioned to her that I was going to be talking to you and she is in a very politically divided family. The kind of family she knows they're going to be arguing at Thanksgiving, right? And and she says that um one of the few things they can share is your stuff because they feel like that's something that gives them both something in common to talk about and it's not something they fight over and that sort of thing. I guess the question I'm getting around to is, is that sort of intentional on your part that you write things that people can, can come from, from all different angles?
0: Absolutely. God bless you for saying that. That really makes me feel very warm inside. Uh, Yes, it is. It is extremely intentional and it's very, I would add that it's, it can be very difficult to, to, to uh, how do I say this? To find to find a place and a voice that will not be misinterpreted as having some sort of agenda behind it. Uh, and I haven't always nailed it. Sometimes I will I will write about something, and because I have not been paying attention to the current events of the day or whatever, one sentence that I've said is is mis translated or misused uh by by one side or another sometimes both sides on the same sentence so it's really bizarre uh, and and that's that's challenge it's challenge but my my goal is to remain completely <sighs> focused on on the things that we all know that we all know it what matters most we all it's, it's no secret it's not like we're all questioning what what is the most important. thing. we all know fundamentally what matters most. It's people. It's family. It's love. It's kindness. Th- these are these are in us. We know this. So I, when I write about it, I'm just trying to to touch that. And I and part of it is just blind faith that if somebody can see that, that maybe for a moment in time they'll forget temporarily uh, about the things that that we've let divide us.
1: Well, it, it, and here's what I struggle with doing some of the same things that you do is that I, I, I believe in all that you just said. I also know that everywhere, but it's, but the South in particular is the home of all these conflicts that have, that have happened for as long as the South has been around. People are still fighting a lot of the same old battles. And sometimes it feels to me like maybe I ought to, you know, Put a stake down somewhere and say how I feel about it. Do you have those urges sometimes, and and sort of tamp them down, or I mean, how do you how do you deal with that?
0: Well, uh, yeah, the urge is there, absolutely, especially when it's an issue that that you you feel is so clear cut. When it comes to being a decent human being and loving other people, and you see some people not going about executing love in the, in the best way possible, you know, whatever that means. Sometimes I get impassioned about something, but the truth is I don't know everything about the issue. I'm, I'm really the most uneducated guy on the playing field. I think I've just established that, which is, you know, people know I have no, I have no right to, to say what, what is the right choice or whatever. So in my mind, the way I try to answer it is in, in some sort of parabolic form. If you can tell a story, if you can get a story out, people can discern the meaning for themselves of what you're trying to convey. They're smart enough to find, to find the thread. And if you tell it right, and this is my goal, and I, and I hope that I get better at it as time goes on, if you tell that story right, everybody's disarmed because you, you're you not pushing for any one perspective. You're just telling the story.
1: When we come back, Sean Dietrich talks about how humor can give him some distance from hard times.
0: If you're able to say something funny, If if it's about anything, you can process the event better because it gives you a little breathing room, I feel like.
1: That and more I had on Southbound. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at Tomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now back to my conversation with Sean Dietrich. So I, I want to talk about this new book, uh, You Are My Sunshine, which comes from, um, you know, it's, it's a, a generally a lighthearted book, but it too kind of starts in a little bit of a dark place. Mm-hmm. Uh, your wife's illness. And, um, And could you sort of uh, explain this big adventure that you two went on and and sort of how that happened? Uh,
0: The book was born out of of, um, an experience we had. My wife was thought to have cancer, and uh, it was a long, arduous, bad experience. We made promises to each other when we were going through that bad time like everybody does and one of our promises was to do this bike trip it was a long time ago we we're about to be married 20 years uh, in December so we just kind of forgot about it until the pandemic came along and the pandemic came along everything you know work dried up everybody was stuck at home and we decided to make good on this uh, really and by we decided I mean that she forced me And we, uh, it was a, it's 350 mile bike route starting from Pittsburgh and it goes all the way through the Laurel Highlands and the great Allegheny mountains until it joins the Chesapeake and Ohio canal towpath in Maryland. And then you're, uh, you're going to West Virginia, you cross the Mason Dixon line, you go into West Virginia and then you end around Washington, D.C. It technically ends in Georgetown, but it's a long bike ride and it's a very cultural experience. Our adventure began in Pittsburgh and I, you know, I've never been to Pittsburgh before and it was a strange city for me, just really wild.
1: Well, sort of like the beginning of the path is just like you're just riding through urban Pittsburgh, right?
0: Yes, it is. It's hard to find. It, there were no markers. There was no way to find it. And so we're driving through this this urban jungle wearing lycra pants. We found ourselves in some some harried situations uh, until we finally found the trail.
1: And she found this the idea to do this out of some magazine, right? As I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, one, one more page and you could have ended up like, climbing Mount Everest or something, you know, She, had, if she had just happened to find a different magazine or a different story or
0: something. Yeah. Only I'm not sure I actually could have even made it to the base camp of Mount Everest, let alone do what we did.
1: Well, it, it sounds well, I was going to say, it sounds like you had a little bit of a tough time doing what you did. So you had, so your wife had a normal bike, right? you had a
0: tricycle, like a
1: three wheeler recumbent bike. Right. So you're kind of like low and on your back. This whole time, basically.
0: That's exactly right. It's like riding a Barker lounger. It's <laughs> really – and it's uh, – if you remember big wheels when you are a kid, it's sure. It's it's just like that, only you lean farther back. And it's actually quite comfortable and fun to ride, but people were very interesting when they reacted to you on the trail. Because most people ride – most people hike or ride a traditional bike. And they would pass me by, and they'd look back at me, and they'd go, oh – He's so brave. (laughs) And I'd think, wow. So
1: this book obviously is is as much about your wife as it is about you. Yeah. And I'm wondering if beyond the facts of the trip, which are obviously a good structure for a book, if you were wanting to write some sort of kind of tribute to her or something like that.
0: Yeah, this was all about her, really. I've written uh several books now but none none of them have been expressly about her and the relationship we share together and i just wanted that to be documented she deserves it because she is uh, she puts up with me but she's a she's a very good woman she's a very exceptional human being and i obviously love her more than anything
1: and do you guys look back on this trip fondly now
0: oh yeah we do. I will certain parts. Because <laughs> I was gonna say, in the moment, there are parts you're you're not very fond of at all. You know, that's the interesting thing about doing trails that I found out. And 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 you talk to other people who've done trails, and and it's this is it's this way all over the the board for a lot of people. You don't do them to have the kind of experience you would think you're going to have. You think it's just going to be fun the whole way through, but it's not fun the whole way through. In fact, it sometimes very little of it is actually is fits our definition of fun and yet there is some deeper gratification in it even in the especially sometimes in the bad parts so that's weird i can't explain it i guess it's it's uh something deep in the the physiology of man and when he's in the woods you know when you survive something it makes you feel really good but it did change us, and that sounds so trite and so ridiculous to say that I'm a changed man. I, I really do, really can trace a, a turning point in my own life back to that trail ever since we finished it. My wife and I hike all the time now, all the time. We, I mean, we've been out three times this week. It, it's really amazing how, how often we find ourselves out in nature now, uh, needing to be out in nature. We'll talk to each other over dinner one night and say, man, we, I really want to go out of, into the woods, don't you? And she'll say, "Yeah, let's let's do it tomorrow." We were never like that before.
1: So you obviously, this book has is a lot about your wife and, and y'all's relationship, and and you write about her at other times too. Do you, does she look at that stuff first, or how how do you two negotiate? Like, is there anything that she doesn't want you to write about, or any of that sort of stuff?
0: Well, I never let her read a book until it's completely finished. And fully edited and ready for print so I so so there's that because I don't I want her to see it a lot of people I know they'll let their wives or their spouses or their husbands read a book before it's finished and you'll get their input on it I would not like that because uh, that would alter the creative process for me to have to know that I have to please or tread lightly around somebody so uh, that said uh, I want her to read it as a finished product. But when she does read it, there is still a little padded room in there for, for a change if something needs to be changed, uh, something emergency. Uh, and she didn't want to change anything, which was glorious uh, since she was such a large part of this book.
1: So you you go around the South doing a lot of sh- like live shows and that sort of thing. You play music, you tell stories and that sort of thing. Have you gotten a sense of like kind of who your audience is from that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I have, but once you think you have figured it out, you're wrong, and it'll always change on you, uh, and you will think that you're talking to this crowd here, and you will find yourself in a place full of people you had no idea found any value in your work. We travel around a lot, and we've had a lot of meaningful experiences, and when it started, it it seemed to be that I was mostly connected with with people who had gone through some sort of trauma. Uh, They they identified with the trauma aspect of what, what I've been through and whatever their trauma was, they just wanted to be seen by somebody else. And we would have these powerful, powerful moments in after the show was over and these, the book lines when people would we'd shake hands and meet uh, with people who have been gone through everything under the sun. It did make my wimpy trauma look like nothing compared to the things that they've overcome. So that was in the, in the initial phases. That's what I thought the audience was just that, but it since then it has become so much more colorful and diverse. If we had a, a guy to show just recently, he was, He was blind and his wife brought him and he was carrying his guidance cane and his wife reads him all my stuff out loud. And he just wanted to meet the man who had their voice. (laughs) He wanted to hear my voice or something he said. And so uh, I I read some to him and, you know, I would have never thought that my work would transcend that kind of a boundary. And, And that's just one tiny example.
1: So that's interesting, I I had not thought about maybe the the people who came out at first being people who had gone through some sort of trauma or whatever. I wonder, in your kind of personal experience, first of all, I don't quite know how to ask this.
0: Yeah,
1: Do you think you write with humor because you were trying to sort of write your way away from that? Drama and humor was the easiest way to do it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Hands down, absolutely. Humor serves two really important functions, uh, especially in writing. This is just my opinion, by the way. You know, I, I say it authoritatively because it makes me sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> Humor uh, serves to me a few main functions. And the first one is it helps you process things non-personally. If you're able to say something funny, if, if it's about anything, you can process the event better because it gives you a little breathing room, I feel like. Uh, the second part is it disarms something really bad it can dis and and we i see this all the time in friends who go through terrible experiences uh, a friend of mine he was diagnosed with some bad bad cancer and he made these dark jokes about it the whole way through and they were very uncomfortable Not many people were sure whether or not to smile or or even wanted to laugh at these. And yet he did it so often. uh, And it uh, occurred to me that this is his way of dealing with this. It disarms the pain just a little bit to to poke at it. Because what else can you do? And I find that the funniest writers that I know, starting with the king, Mark Twain, have been through the worst horrors. So humor for me is, is very intentional. It also just feels good, uh, plain and simple. Humor just feels good. And if someone can make you laugh or smile at all, that person is very valuable.
1: It's a fair question in these troubling times to ask why everybody with a voice and an opinion shouldn't just walk in swinging with both hands. But there's got to be some way to reach people other than hollering. There's got to be some sense of common values and beliefs. Sean Dietrich works that neutral ground. It's harder than it looks. He's trying to tell stories everyone might see themselves in, while at the same time trying to make a point about how we might see others. And he's trying to make you laugh while he's doing it. Trying to bring people together is like raking leaves. It's tedious work. The wind blows them around. Sometimes a dog jumps in the pile. And even when you do it just right, you go out the next day and they're all scattered again. Some people would rather just burn the leaves. Sean Dietrich is out there with a rake, a tool, not a weapon, trying his best to make a pile that'll stay put. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte, Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.